Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to River Heights Vineyard. Super glad that you are here. My name is John, and welcome also to those who are joining us online today. Uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, um, I'm a member of our volunteer preaching team here at River Heights, and this is my very first sermon at our church today. Wow, thank you. You're clapping a little early, but that's okay. Um, I'm, I'm really honored to be offering the message today. Uh, and I realize that not everyone knows me maybe very well. Uh, so I thought I'd share just a little bit about who I am, where I come from, so you can, you can get a better feel for, for what I'm bringing today. And also the experiences that have shaped the way I've heard our, our miracle story today that we'll be sharing together. First, I'm married to Hopewell, as many, many of you have may have uh, met her. We've been a part of River Heights Vineyard for a little over two and a half years. We're newcomers to Minnesota. We moved here in the summer of 2020, so Hopewell could attend the U of M. She's in a PhD program studying to become a developmental psychologist, and she even took a little time off homework today to weigh in on the sermon, so thank you to Hopewell. And we're both really grateful to have found our way here to River Heights. Uh, we initially got connected here because we were part of a vineyard church out in Connecticut on the East Coast, um, and we actually, that's where we, where we met, like I mentioned. Um, and I have called the vineyard home my entire life. Uh, my dad was a vineyard pastor uh, for almost 40 years, and when I was a teenager, our family planted a vineyard church in Billings, Montana, where I grew up. And this is, this is our family right here, out in the mountains. <coughs> Over the years, I've been part of vineyard communities in five different states, and I've had the privilege of visiting even more, including some overseas. And outside of church, I enjoy playing the guitar, writing songs, and taking a good road trip. I work at Bethel University as an academic advisor, where I support graduate students who are in Masters of Teaching programs to become teachers in districts around Minnesota. And I also did some extra time in school myself as a seminary student on the East Coast, where I earned an MDiv degree in 2020, right before we moved here. So this morning, we're concluding our summer series that we've been sharing together, a series called The Miracles of Jesus. In the stories we've heard, or in the series, we've heard lots of stories from the Bible about the ways real people like you and I experience Jesus' ministry firsthand and witness God's compassionate power. We've heard some of the most fantastic stories from the four gospel books in the Bible. Jesus changing water into wine, Jesus healing people of serious, gnarly physical illnesses, Jesus revealing himself to his followers after he was resurrected from the dead, and even Jesus taking some time to help some guys catch some more fish. As we've heard each of these stories, our theme verse from the Gospel of John has helped us understand all these miracles. The verse is here. But these are written, these stories of miracles, so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. I really like this explanation of miracles that our, our verse provides. It strikes me as like something a good mentor might say. It gives us something to do, and it tells us why we should do it. So the something to do is to continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And the why is because there's life for us in Jesus. If you were here last week, you heard Sandy share that each of the miracle stories we have heard and those that we continue to experience in our community today are not ultimately separate stories. Sandy shared that each miracle we experience or read about is a part of a bigger, greater miracle, that God is actively present, involved in our lives, and is working to change the world through the love of Christ. 
And as this verse from the Gospel of John explains, we receive each of these stories as a reminder that God is giving us life through Jesus. But to me, the verse begs a little bit of a question, which is, what is that life? What can we say about it? And the life that God, the Gospel of John mentions here is not just our material or biological life as we know it right now. Earlier in John's Gospel, back in chapter 10, Jesus explains a little bit more about what this life looks like. He says, All who came before me were thieves and robbers. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Some translations say that I have come that they might have life and have it to the full or have, might have life abundantly. And one of my own mentors told me once that God's power is indestructible life. And this is how I imagine what this life that we receive in the power of Jesus' name actually looks like. It's, again, it's not life just as we know it right now, as we all have experienced. The life we have now has its limitations, both in length and in quality. And although this life now is still a gift from God, the Bible tells us that in Christ we also receive life that goes beyond the limitations that we have now. The power of God's love is making all things right and new in our world. And this happens through the power of Christ's resurrection, God's own indestructible life shared with us. So for our last miracle story of the summer series today, we're going to hear another story of healing from the Gospel of Mark. For those of us who were here a few weeks ago when Scott Oakman shared, uh, this story is going to pick up right after uh, the, the story that Scott shared when Jesus goes out of his way to a foreign territory to heal a mentally ill Gentile man who was oppressed by demons and lived in an outcast in a cemetery next to a bunch of pigs. It's a crazy story. And as Scott shared, Jesus went out of his way just to heal this man and return him to his community. So right after this episode comes our story today, a story about the healing of two daughters. And as we're about to see, Jesus will continue to go out of his way to bring new, new life to these people. And some of us might, might right now need to remember that Jesus will go out of his way to meet you. I believe that. Uh, if you'd like to read along with the story, I'd invite you now to turn to Mark chapter 5, verse 21, or to follow along on the screen here, and I will read our story today. So Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, kind of like a church, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. And Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them but she'd gotten no better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. 
She could feel in her body that she'd been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out for him, and so he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look, this crowd's pressing all around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. Some translations say that she told him the whole story. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers came from the house of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your daughter's dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd, wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping and wailing? This child isn't dead, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him. But he made them all leave. He took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who is 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and then he told them to give her something to eat. So I'll pray for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for this story. Thank you for passing it down to us over many, many years so we might share more and learn more about your good life. Amen. The story starts with two very different people approaching Jesus, Jairus and the unnamed woman who's healed. Jairus is a man, he's a public official, a religious leader, and he speaks on behalf of someone else who needs healing, someone he loves. The woman is a woman, she doesn't have a name in the story. She's apparently scared to present herself publicly and she advocates for herself even though she's in need of healing and presumably is someone's family member, she speaks on her own. She has no one else to speak on her behalf. And another really big difference that Jair, between Jairus and the woman that, that would have been obvious to the first Christians who recorded this story is their social and religious status culturally. The Jewish culture of the time put a really high value on honoring God's presence and God's law. And people accomplish this by maintaining ceremonial cleanliness or certain behaviors or rituals that would honor God and maintain the community's purity for their worship practices. And according to the Hebrew Bible, what we Christians call the Old Testament, some physical conditions and bodily processes were considered unclean and had to be purified in order to become appropriate to bring to worship. And so according to these rules, if a man or a woman had a discharge of certain bodily fluids, would be ceremonially unclean. This meant that they were not able to have contact with other people for a certain amount of time, were not able to join for worship for a certain amount of time until they followed some prescribed actions to become clean again. Otherwise, this uncleanliness might, might spread in the community. 
So these rules included instructions for women who were menstruating, for women whose periods lasted longer than usual. And although our story does not say exactly what this woman's condition was, commentators pretty much agree that, that Mark is delicately telling the audience that this is what was happening, the woman was experiencing some kind of menstrual disorder. But because her bleeding didn't stop, she was not able to complete the required steps to become ceremonially clean again. And so this condition meant that this woman was probably excluded from gathering for worship, and she might have even been subjected to quarantine. And uh, as we all can attest from experience over the last few years, quarantine precautions can often be alienating and discouraging. I would imagine this was also true for her. She wasn't able to be close to other people. She was not able to attend for gathered worship, even though other people could. So the COVID pandemic kept us all away from, from these things for some amount of time, right? But imagine being subjected to this for 12 years. I'm honest, I think I would struggle to maintain my faith if I was not able to regularly be present with our community for support. I really depend on that. And it's worth remembering right now that many of our sisters and brothers today, even here, are not able to regularly gather for a variety of reasons, so it's illness, mobility, lack of transportation. And so this woman is not only physically uncomfortable, but she's ceremonially unclean and excluded from her community. She's experiencing what many social scientists and healthcare providers today might call a social death. A social death is a way of describing the experience of people who are alive and maybe even healthy, but they're treated as if they were dead or as if they didn't exist. Today, we might imagine people in nursing homes who don't have family to come visit, or people who spent time in jail and can't get a job later on. This woman is alive. Apparently, she's been able to go and see some doctors, but she's effectively cut off from real belonging in her community. And this situation is a really stark contrast to Jairus' situation. Not only can he attend gathered worship regularly, but he's an administrator of the synagogue where it happens. He's not only included, he's really central. Jairus probably would not have been able to sneak through the crowd the way the woman does unnoticed. We're told that there was a, a, a big crowd of people when Jesus comes to the lakeshore and Jairus somehow makes his way right to the front, almost as if the crowd recognized him and gave him some room. He's anything but cut off from his community. When I was in seminary, uh, one of my theology professors said something that has really stuck with me uh, over the years now. He said, the Holy Spirit is in the business of bringing together bodies that wouldn't normally be together. As we all have probably experienced, cultures all around the world, through history, even today, separate people based on their bodies, sex, color of their skin, their physical abilities, or health. In our country, this has looked like racist laws and practices like redlining that have excluded black Americans from owning homes, building wealth next to white Americans. And the Bible makes very clear that God will oppose those who separate and exploit other people instead of loving and serving them. But sometimes the separation culturally ha is not intended, but it happens anyway, almost as a byproduct of the things that we value as a culture. For example, in our culture now, we really value individual mobility 
being able to go wherever I want to go whenever I want to go there. This means that I travel around in a car, which is big enough basically just for me and maybe just a few friends or family members, the people that I want around me. Since we all like to travel this way, most of our stores, our events, our schools, even our churches are only accessible if you can drive a car. So this value on individual freedom to travel in a car is not necessarily a bad thing, and actually in the, the rural areas where I grew up, it was super helpful. But it also means that those of us who can't drive have a much more difficult time participating in community. It's this tough dynamic. Um, means that some of us are physically separated from our loved ones. So sometimes the things that we value as a culture, whether it's individual mobility or ceremonial purity, like in our story today, sometimes the things we value have greater costs for some people than for other people. And this was certainly true for, for the woman we've heard about today. Both men and women observed ceremonial purity, but unlike this woman, most of them were able to become clean again, and she was not. As Christians, we know that when God is present, the walls that divide us start to break down. This is true in our worship gatherings every week. It's true today. We bring all of our differences, our different occupations, our different life experiences, our different ethnic heritages, our political preferences, our different physical abilities. We take them all and we bring them right here to, to this room that we're in. When we sing together, we play games with our children together, we share the same stories, we pray for one another, and we help one another encounter the presence of God's spirit that is drawing us all together. And this kind of thing is also going on in the story today. Because of the presence of Jesus, Jairus and this woman find themselves in the same crowd. The only thing they have in common is that they're both willing to overlook the social and religious expectations that have held them back so they can get something even more valuable, which is a touch from Jesus. Maybe some of us today have some things we're ready to let go of, stop worrying about, so we can experience the presence of Jesus. And Jairus asks Jesus to lay his hands on his daughter so she can live. But right before Jairus meets Jesus on the lakeshore, Jesus was in a cemetery next to a bunch of, a bunch of pigs. Both dead bodies and pigs were also considered unclean in, in the culture that Jesus and Jairus shared. But Jairus doesn't even stop to ask Jesus, what, what were you doing over there? To make sure that he can observe the proper customs. And the woman also thinks, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Her dilemma is a little bit different than Jairus's. Jairus might have been concerned that he would be unclean by association with Jesus, where the woman may have been concerned that Jesus would become unclean by association with her. Jairus becomes ready to accept uncleanliness in order to save his daughter. And the woman becomes ready to risk that Jesus will exclude her or shame her, that he won't accept the unclean parts of her. Jairus and the woman are both willing to bear the social consequences of coming close to Jesus. They've both decided that the death that is in their lives should not continue. And they've both decided that life is more important than the rules. So the woman approaches Jesus, and she touches his robe, and immediately the bleeding stops. 
she got what she came for. And that's a good thing. But it's not enough for Jesus in the story. Jesus also wants her to be healed of her social debt. And so he confronts her, forcing Jairus and the crowd around to look at her, to see her when all of the social norms have left her hidden. And in front of everyone in the town, he calls her daughter and restores her to belonging in her community. I like this a lot. I like this so much that for the rest of our time, I'll refer to her as the older daughter since she's no longer a stranger. It's a powerful scene. While all of this is happening, some messengers arrive from Jairus' house, and they have terrible news. His daughter has died. So in the span of just a moment, this community has regained a daughter, and Jairus has lost his own. And we don't know what the response was. The story happens really fast, and it really doesn't say what Jairus thought in this moment. Perhaps he was just in shock. Perhaps he was angry. Angry that Jesus took time for someone who was a nobody when he could have hurried to come back to his house and save his daughter in time. Perhaps later, he began to see that this older daughter was just as loved as his own child. And Jesus sees Jairus right in this moment. He sees him receive the news of his daughter's death and goes to him right, right then. Some translations say that Jesus ignores the messengers. He doesn't care. And Jesus speaks to Jairus. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. These words might sound a little trite and even offensive given the circumstances. If someone told you that they had just lost a loved one, we wouldn't say, have you tried believing a little more? As a side tip, this don't, don't say this. <laughs> we know it's hard enough to have faith that a sick person will get better. It's another thing to have faith that a dead person will get back up. So to Jairus and the onlookers, certainly to the people who have already begun mourning at Jairus' house, Jesus might have sounded pretty rude or at least really off base. However, as the story shows, Jesus is not misunderstanding the situation. Jesus has just witnessed the older daughter act in faith and receive a healing. Jesus tells her, your faith has saved you. Jesus knows the stakes are actually life and death. And it would have been impossible to grow up in Jesus' day in his cultural setting without an intimate understanding that death is real and it's painful. Nonetheless, in the story, Jesus apparently thinks that faith can be an appropriate response, not only to illness, but even to death itself. And here, our story starts to foreshadow the big gospel story. Mark is hinting ahead to when Jesus himself will face death and overcome it on our behalf. But I think when Jesus is telling Jairus to have faith, He's telling Jairus to be like the older daughter, to resist acting as though death and disease have the final say in her life. This daughter trusted that it was right that she should be healed, that the physical illness and the social death that she's experienced for so long 
we're, we're still not the last word for her. And as her faith and the life-giving presence of Jesus come together, the death that is in her life starts to lose its power. Jesus is telling Jairus this could also be true, even for his daughter. And it's interesting to me that the two daughters are, are mirrored in the story. So Jairus' daughter is 12 years old, which means that she was born just as the older daughter's disorder and social death would have started. The story says that she had been bleeding for 12 years. And as soon as the older daughter's healed, the younger daughter dies in the same moment. It's almost like there's one whole life that has to be split up between the two of them. And it's really tempting sometimes, right, to, to look at the world this way, to believe that God only wants a little bit of good life for us, that there's actually not enough for everyone, and so we'll just have to make do with what we get, that death and division are things that we should just learn how to accept. And it seems to be what the messengers in the story think. They assume that healing's no longer possible because the younger daughters actually died. And the mourners at Jairus' house, too, they mock Jesus because they believe that he's being foolish to claim authority over death. And for me, this is where the story gets especially challenging. Because I, th I think these people have a point. In the middle of our experiences, in the middle of our own losses, it is actually difficult a lot of the time to imagine the abundant life that Jesus offers us. As we say often here in the vineyard, uh, we live in the now and in the not yet. We see glimpses of the life that God wants for us, and we also see that it's not yet here in full. The good news for us, even though it's challenging to see it at times, is that Jesus comes to us right in the middle of this experience, that Jesus understands our experience, and that in Jesus' presence, we, we receive the grace to believe the way that he does. Jesus and Jairus witness the older daughter's faith and the servants and the mourners' lack of faith. And right in the middle of all of that, Jesus walks into Jairus' house and he takes Jairus' daughter by the hand. He simply says, little girl, get up. Jesus doesn't call her daughter, perhaps because her own parents are present, and she doesn't have to be reminded that she has a place to belong. And she gets up and walks around the room. She's restored to life. Jesus also sees that the girl must be hungry. This is perhaps another hint toward Jesus' own experience when he will share food with his, his disciples after he's raised from the dead. A same theology professor I mentioned earlier had another line that stuck out with me. Theology professors are really great sources of faith sometimes. He said, there are some evils in the world for which the only appropriate answer is resurrection. I believe this. Losing a child is a terrible thing. Twelve years of social death, half a life, is a terrible thing. And there are some losses that can't be unlost. These kinds of losses have to be restored and redeemed, which is ultimately the work of Christ's resurrection. And as Christians, I don't think we can act as though believing in God's life means that we, we don't or won't experience loss. 
All the people in the story today experience loss. When we have faith in Jesus, we're, we're recognizing that the world that God loves, the world that we're all a part of, is the same world that received Jesus' ministry, all these miracles of life that we've heard about this summer, and then gave him back death on a cross. Faith in Jesus also means that Christ is working new life by in the middle of all of it, and that death does not have the last word. As we pray every Sunday, as we'll pray a little bit later in our service today, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. So in this gospel story and in all of the miracle stories this summer, we can start to see and maybe even to believe that Jesus is not only about the business of healing individuals here and there, but he's about the business of undoing the power of death once and for all wherever it's found, from fishermen who can't get enough fish to support their families, a socially outcast man who lives among the tombs, even a party that's at risk of fizzling out because they ran out of wine, to a daughter who's been subjected to a social death, a daughter who's been taken by illness. Jesus is not just a faith healer for hire who comes to make our lives a little bit better He's a radical presence that causes new life to spring up wherever he goes. He's breaking down our rules that keep people from experiencing that life. And no little bit of death's power will remain when he's done. And even now, he's still working. And I don't think we have to wait to begin believing and receiving even more from God. Today, Jesus might be saying to us, too, be more like the older daughter. Reach out in faith in the middle of your circumstances. Maybe some of us identify more with the younger daughter. We don't have what it takes right now to reach out. We're waiting for Jesus to come and take us by the hand, raise us to new life, bring us some good food. Wherever you find yourself in the story, Jesus is ready to meet you. And there's space for all of us today to respond in the rest of our service, to receive a little more of the indestructible life that Jesus brings us, and together hope even more for the day when we experience this life to the full. So I'd like to invite the worship team back up now, and the prayer team as well, if we have prayer team folks that are, that are ready and, and willing to come to the corners here of the room, I'd invite you all to stand uh, now uh, as you're able. And we're going to receive three tips that will help us carry what we've what we shared today into our, our lives this week. Uh, we always have something to read, something to pray, and something to do. So something to read. Uh, read the story that we've shared today again. And, and when you do that, I invite you to just notice what sticks out to you the most. It's a character or a specific line. Ask God what, what that means. What's that, what, what is that, what's that about in your life? Uh, something to pray, I'd invite you to ask God for more abundant life, whatever that looks like for you right now, and see what God says about that. And something to do, uh, think of someone in your life or identify someone who's experiencing social death, or someone you maybe have been connected with but are now separated from. Give some life to them. Share a meal, give someone a ride, give them a call, whatever that, whatever that looks like. 
So we're going to respond to God's word through some more musical worship and prayer and then communion here in just a few minutes. Um, and these uh, folks are trained and really ready to pray for you for the rest of the time together. So please feel free to take advantage of that. And some specific invitations uh, might be, you know, if, if you have some physical illnesses that you're, you're struggling with, come get prayer for that. You have some kind of properness or some rules or expectations in your life that you're ready to let go of to meet Jesus. There's there's grace for that today. Um, and, and specifically, if, if you're identifying with the younger daughter and you, you don't have the energy to believe right now, we can we can help each other with that. Come, I'd invite you, especially to come get some prayer for that. Um, maybe to something we see in the story, Jesus cares about women. Uh, <laughs> That hasn't always been true in, in all of our church experience. So if, that, if that's landing with you in some way, there's grace for that too. Um, so the worship team will, will deliver, uh, dismiss us when the service is over. Um, I'll be out the double doors by the Welcome Center. I would love to connect after the service today.